students, thank you so much for leading us in worship today, and Pastor Laramie as well. Thank you so much for leading them and equipping them to do so. You guys did such a wonderful job in drawing our hearts and our affections to Christ. And I also want to thank Lewis just for the opportunity to come and bring the word this morning. Thank you, Lewis, for letting me come in and and finish Romans chapter 15 for us today. And uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. We're going to be finishing that chapter today, verses 14 to 33. Now, thinking about some of the context of things that had led right up to this, you know, we covered last week about how just as Christ welcomed us, we should welcome others. And this is, in particular context, the Jews welcoming the Gentiles. And this was so evident from the promises given to the patriarchs in the scripture. Uh, in, in order why, look at verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then it goes on and quotes every major section of the Old Testament. It quotes the Pentateuch and the wisdom literature, the writings, and, and then the prophets. And it goes through there and does that. And it ends in verse 13 saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So as we think about this passage and we think you know, clearly as we look into verse 14, there's gonna be a change in tone here. He just ended with some sort of a benediction of some kind. And now he's going to focus on matters of more of his personal travel. And sometimes when we read these sections of the Bible, we can kind of get a little glazed eyes over it. Next week, we're going to hear a lot of names of people he's greeting, so it gets more so maybe that way. But we got to put ourselves in the original context. And why is Paul closing his letter in this way? He starts talking about his travel. We're going to learn a lot in this passage about Paul's driving motivation, his affections, and what is his ambition. And Really, if I were to sum up what this message is, the main idea of this passage, it's this. We must make it our holy ambition to take the gospel to all nations for the sake of Christ's name. I think this is the point of this text, and I think here as we think about the main idea, we must make it our holy ambition to take the gospel to all nations for the sake of Christ's name. Now, like a good Baptist this morning, I have found a way to alliterate all three points this morning. So, for our point number one today, verses 14 to 16, this is going to open up with the description of his ministry, the description of his ministry. Look down at verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, why would this compliment be significant? He had just walked through 14 chapters of solid Christian doctrine and application, it almost seems like uh, by saying this that maybe they weren't filled with knowledge. Maybe they weren't. We might think that uh, because he gave them so much knowledge. Really, Romans is a heavy theological book. We learn a lot about the doctrines of salvation and of sanctification and, and even doctrines of, of grace and election and all these different things in these passages. But what we don't want to miss here is really the beauty of sanctification. You see, Paul wrote to them over some very serious matters. And in the same way, they still here are commended. He's convinced or persuaded about where they're at. He's satisfied about where they're at. And he is speaking somewhat hyperbolic, but it's not to flatter them. It is a courtesy before he gets into what he's saying. He's, I'm satisfied about you. You're filled with goodness. You are full of goodness. In other words, their works, they correspond. They correspond with what they know because they're filled with all knowledge. Now, I don't know if you remember this from when we covered this earlier on in Romans 1, but this is a church, and you're going to see in this text, he's never met them. 
He's met other churches. He met the church of Corinth. He helped plant it. He was there for a long time. He had been all over the Eastern part of the Roman empire. And yet, and yet he had not met them, but he knows about them. He knows about their faith. Now, some of your translations might say that, uh, like the NASB, it says, I am convinced or I have been persuaded and I'm convinced. Well, what's going on here? He's stating very positively what he knows about them. And he's convinced of their health. Yes, they have issues that have been addressed here in this letter, but he's persuaded and confident because of their goodness. He's filled with knowledge. And notice this. He says that they are able to instruct one another. Now, they've shown the marks of a true Christian. He lays that out in Romans 12 for them. But notice here this phrase, they're able to instruct one another. This word instruct, it, 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 this is the word that means to counsel, to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. It's used as an admonishment or a warning to help guide people. We often use this, this uh, kind of teaching or even counseling at Woodlawn, the ACBC conference that's coming. That they used to be called the Association or National Association of Nuthetic Christian Counseling. That word nuthetic is the word here in this text to instruct, to warn, to admonish. So here, we want to bring the word of God to bear. We as pastors, and we're not doing this alone, and, and we see this as Paul's philosophy of ministry, he would agree with this. Notice the text doesn't say your pastors do a really good job instructing you. He says you are able to instruct one another in the body of Christ. They're filled with knowledge as the body. They're filled with goodness as the body, and they can instruct one another as the body. So the church in first century Rome, they knew how to counsel each other. They knew how to guide toward the right course of action. Now, we should be able to do the same for one another. Now, looking at this text, and at the beginning of this whole book, he says in Romans uh, 1.8, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed to all the world. They're an example. He's not just flattering them here when he says oh, you're full of goodness, you're, you're able to instruct one another. It's so well known that this Roman church in all the world, that their faith is proclaimed. It's an example. Now look at the text though, verse 15, he kind of changes here. He says, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So even though there's some good things to say, there were some things that needed some correction. We understand there was some division and, and difficulty as related between their opinions. We saw that in Romans 14, but also between the Jew and Gentile dynamic within the church. So he's had to very boldly write them and, and remind them. But why? Remember I talked about how this point is a description of his ministry. And look at the text. He's going to go on and describe this ministry. He says, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Notice this language. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a few things I want us to take away right here from these verses. Notice number one, that Paul's ministry comes from God's active grace. God gave him this ministry. It's not something he deserved or earned. Remember, he persecuted the church of God. He killed Christians. Yet God saved him and now is using him. Everything we have comes from God and Paul recognizes that God has given this ministry to me. It's an act of kindness from God. But notice here in this text as well, we see the Trinity. We see the Trinity. We see, mentioned first, we see the Son. 
in, in the beginning of verse 16, and then the Father, and then in the closing of verse 16, the Spirit. This was a Trinitarian ministry. This is a ministry that extolled the doctrine of God. And, and we see very clearly here how this moves forward. It's essential in how he understands his own ministry. Notice how he describes it in talking about Christ Jesus. He's a minister of Christ. Christ had sent him. He follows in his example. And it's to the Gentiles in particular. And this language in the priestly service of the gospel of God, this priestly service really draws to mind the book of Leviticus and and even Jesus in the book of Hebrews being our great high priest. It's like Paul is an assistant to the great high priest. He does what the great high priest, Jesus, has said to do. And he serves in that kind of way. Now, the Levitical priests, you know, they were commanded to oversee proper worship according to what God has regulated in his word. We see that language in Paul below. Notice this other, three other words here that are very strong Levitical language. So that the offering, so offering you offer sacrifices, that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Remember, there was unacceptable worship in the book of Leviticus. Nadab and Abihu were killed because they offered unacceptable, strange fire. We see that language. And it notice sanctified or set apart. And notice how by the Holy Spirit. So as a priest, as a priest in the sense of Levitical priest, in this priestly service that Paul, it's, it's like this. Paul, his ministry to the Gentiles is meant to bring them as an offering to God. It's an act of worship for Paul to evangelize. It's an act of worship for him to plant churches in places that had, do not have churches. It is an act of worship to extol God in his glorious name. And we see this, even, we've already seen this language of Paul when he appeals to the, or to the Romans. He appeals to the Romans in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Very well-known verse. We all know this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the basis of his appeal. And what does he say to do? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he commands them, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and listen to this, acceptable and perfect. So we clearly see that Paul sees himself in this way. This language isn't new in Romans, and he sees himself giving his life in complete worship to God. His ministry is worship to God. Now, you might be asking yourself at this point, okay, Travis, I get it, right? Paul, it's his ministry, it's important. But what if we wanted to apply it, you know, then maybe think about the ministry staff at Woodlawn. You have an important role as you serve, but what does this have to do with me? Well, if you are a Christian, you are in full-time ministry. You know that? You know, when some people might ask me what I do, I say, I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher. I don't say I'm in full-time ministry, even though it's true that I am. But I hope you, if you say your vocation, you might say, I'm a doctor, or I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a nurse, or hey, I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I'm an engineer, Whatever you are, you could say, that's my full-time ministry. That might be a a great way to even enter a gospel conversation. Well, what do you mean by that? So maybe you never thought of it that way. But each of us have a role as ministers of God. We've been given this grace to serve the body, and we must extend that grace to those who haven't heard. That is our ministry. Maybe some have heard, but we cannot begin reaching those who haven't heard if we don't start with those around us. You see, this ministry, it begins to take place in our home with our children, Maybe your extended family this week at Thanksgiving. Maybe a, a long-distant cousin you haven't seen in a long time, and they're like, oh, well, what are, you, what are you doing nowadays? Well, my ministry is this. I have this ministry. 
They're going to be like, they might give you a strange look. They probably will. But you know what? That's a good opportunity for you to begin sharing the gospel of God that, Lord willing, has gripped your heart, as you're going to see has gripped Paul's heart. So now, we've looked at his description of his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul goes on to boast now in what God has already done through him, which leads to our second point, the drive of his ministry. Point number two, the drive of his ministry. Look at verse 17. Look at the text. He says this. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Paul's proud of his work. He's proud of what he's doing. You might ask, isn't it prideful for him to be proud of his work? Absolutely not. Because notice where he places his work. He recognizes and acknowledges his work is in Christ Jesus. That's where his work is. He recognizes it's received as a gift of grace. So it couldn't be done apart from him. It's all an act of grace. And verse 18 lays out Paul's reasoning. Look at the text. It opens up with this word for, which is telling us the basis of his boasting that he's proud in this work. He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, that he's explained the basis for his boasting in all of Christ's work to bring to the Gentiles to obedience. Did you catch that? Have you been paying attention to Romans? I know it's been a few years since we started Romans chapter one. But there's something in the very beginning of Romans, and we're going to see in, in the next couple Sundays, in the very end of Romans, this phrase, to bring about the obedience of the faith. And he says here, you know, he Christ has accomplished through him to bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. He's tying in his, you could say, the bookends of his own book, of his own letter to them. What he's telling them to do, he's showing, I've done. He's done it himself. Now, sometimes people might say, well, wait a second, I thought we were saved by faith. Yes, we are. He argues for that in Romans. We are justified by faith. But he wants to bring out the obedience of the faith. And what does that mean? to do what you say you believe. Remember how James argues, he says, faith without works is dead? Our faith must show works. Even James said, you know, you believe God is one, well you do well, even the demons believe, and they tremble. Demons understand who God is, but they don't worship him rightly, they clearly don't serve him. Their works clearly don't match their, what they attest. But do our works, match what we attest. Did the church of Rome, do their works match what they attest? And so just like Paul wants to bring about the obedience of faith in them, he's already been doing that around the world. And now how has he done this? The text unfolds it for us. He says, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God. The source and means of Paul's ministry was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God at work in him through the proclamation of the gospel. He gave evidence of this by doing these deeds and signs and wonders. So something in this specific case was designated to the first century church. We don't have signs and wonders to this day. That was a sign for the apostles to confirm their ministry. There have been no more apostles since then. That's how he did it though, by the proclamation of the word and deed, by signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what are the results of this? Look, look at what happened and what he did. And we know this from the book of Acts. Look at the rest of the verse. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, he's not saying here every single person in these areas has become a believer. That's not the case. But what has he done? He's started something in these places. He's planted churches. People, groups, people in those areas have heard the gospel, been saved, and are obeying the faith, and are growing. He has planted churches. That was his role. Now, this covered all the regions east of Rome. Okay, if you can just imagine with me the Mediterranean Sea and you know where Italy is and Rome. He's never been there. He's not been that far. And if you go, you go across the water there over to where modern day Greece is and you're looking there, he's been up that coast, but he had not made it all the way to Rome yet. That's where Elycrium is. And then you have Acacia down below that. And if you have your Bible, you might have a map in the back. You can go look at it real quick if you don't, have, don't want to imagine it with me. But that's where he's gone. That's as far as he has gone in his ministry. But he recognized, I'm not done yet. I'm not done. And notice, we're going to see why he's not done and what was his drive for his ministry. Look at verse 20. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, on the basis of the fact that he fulfilled his ministry in the eastern side of the Roman Empire, he brought about the obedience of the faith among the Gentiles for the sake of Christ's name. And he's now wanting to continue this ministry. This word for ambition that we get in this text, it's, it's two Greek words put together. One is phileo, which is the brotherly love, like the city of Philadelphia, the city, city of brotherly love. I don't know if you've been there. I don't really feel that way when I go. Um, but um, that's, you know, that's that word, brotherly love. Now, the other part of that word, it's two words put together, is the word temos, is where we get our word for honor, or if your name is Timothy in here today, that's the one who honors God. So these two words are combined together. It's, it's a, a brotherly love type honor, but what, is, what does this mean? What does it come from? Well, in the ancient Greek mind and idea, it was a special honor that was accorded to persons who rendered exceptional service to the state, to other institutions, and many wealthy persons endeavored to outdo one another in showing this you know, philanthropic public service. We see this even today in some ways in our own culture and society. But notice, this isn't applied to just causes of charity that he's talking about. He has an ambition that's driven to honor God, that's rooted in brotherly love. In that way, this ambition that drives him, and it's to extol the name of Christ. He wants to do what? He said to preach the gospel. That's his ambition, to proclaim the good news. That's what that means. And we see here, in this context that Paul, as his priestly service, he's already talked about describing his ministry. This is what drives his ministry, this ambition. It's, it really here is what he aspires toward. It's not for his own gain. It's driven out of love for God and people. This is what drives the apostle. This is what motivates him. This is what gets him up in the morning, his love for God. And this works in him obedience to the gospel, to preach the gospel. Look at the, look at the text again. And thus, I make it my ambition. He makes it. He gets up every day. He chooses to do this. It's active in his life. To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So what what does he mean by that? What he means is there are places where churches have already been planted. He's not the only church planter out there. Now, he's done a lot, but there are other apostles that have spread about as well. But he wants to go where people have not gone yet. He wants to represent the name of Christ and continue to wave that banner as an ambassador for Christ. The lost need to be found. He understands that. 
Paul didn't want to go build on someone else's foundation and plant churches there. He made it his ambition to preach the gospel and to build, to go to unreached peoples. So we don't merely preach the gospel, see people saved, and lead them as infants in Christ. When Paul would go somewhere, he would spend a long time there. He would build up the church. And he did that. And, and his, what is his philosophy of ministry and building up a church? Well, we know this from the book of Ephesians. When he would go and build on a foundation, look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, where he says this, he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And it's that language, building up. For how long does he do this for? Well, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, listen to this, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul had an ambition to preach the gospel and build churches, and he did that. And, he, and then when he would be done, he would appoint elders, just like he told Titus to do in the book of Titus, he would appoint elders on the island of Crete there. He would go and appoint elders in places and leave and continue writing to them and encouraging them and building them up. That's what Paul wanted to do. But where did he want to go? He wanted to go where Christ's name had never been mentioned before. He quotes a passage of scripture even to argue this. And this really reflects back to the context of what we just heard last week. The Gentiles, they need to hear. Remember in, in, in Romans fifteen nine, he says, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. There are people who are not doing that yet. Paul gets that. He wants them to rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, to him will the Gentiles hope. He wants that to be the hope of those who have never heard. So he has this ambition. He is going. And he quote, he's quoting this passage out of Isaiah. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him, they will see. And those who have never heard, they will understand. This reference back to Isaiah 52, right before the Isaiah 53, where we see the suffering servant, we see the servant again, but notice in this passage, and starting in verse seven of Isaiah 52, he says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. They sing together for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And and look here, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of who? All the nations and all all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. You see, this is the context of our current passage that he's referencing. He wants all the nations, he wants the end of the earth to see the salvation of our God. But then he goes on in Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And who is this? This is Christ. He shall be high and lifted up. 
shall be, and he shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now listen to this. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. The death of Christ would affect and the salvation that comes through Christ would affect the nations. Then notice he says here, for that which has not been told them, they see. They had never heard, but now they're going to see. This is a prophecy about this. And that which they have not heard, they understand. And Paul is seeking to fulfill this. Paul is seeking to take the gospel. He wants to live this out. This is a prophecy about the good news going out to all the nations. And Paul is saying here, I want everyone to know. I don't want anyone left out. He is making his ambition. He recognizes they're lost. They don't know their creator. Romans 1, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. God's been clearly perceived. They don't know him. And God gives them up. We see in Romans 2 that the law of God's written on their hearts. And Paul makes it his ambition to make the name of Christ clearly known to them. If we want the nations to know God, if we want them to find God, we, we must go to those who have never heard. I think of a friend of mine, uh, he's a missionary in Indonesia, his name's Scott Phillips. And I heard him when I was uh, first a student at Word of Life. And I believe he went to the Dow tribe around t- the year 2000 and spent seven or eight years sharing the gospel with this tribe, with a missions organization. And this tribe had never seen someone with pale skin before. It's literally what they say. You're, wow, we've never seen someone with pale skin. <laughs> way in the mountains. You, it's really difficult to get there. He had to hike his way in, raise his family there, and he took them from creation to Christ. And they'd never heard the name of Christ. The whole tribe comes to faith in Christ. It's a powerful story of how they did so. But he raised up those down people to be missionaries to the other tribes in the mountains. And they would journey, they would trade, do things like this. And this one man had gone to this tribe way, way deep into the jungle and it was called the Dem tribe. And over time in trading with them, they would discuss and have conversations. And he would talk about having heard this message of eternal life. He's sharing his faith, being a missionary, a national, a tribal person being a missionary is amazing. Well, he came back from a journey and saw them again. And when he showed up, they were all quietly sitting in a hut. And, and he said, why, why are you guys sitting in here so quietly? He said, your tribe has heard the message of eternal life and we have not yet heard it. And we're waiting to hear it. There are people who want to hear the gospel. There's people who are lost and dying and need to hear the gospel. Christ's name had not been taken to them yet. And they're waiting to hear the gospel. So this leads to Paul's final point of really and final section of this passage. Point number three, the destinations of his ministry. He has this ambition. He wants to go. Look at verse 22, the destinations of his ministry. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, remember, they never met them as a church. He's only heard of their faith. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, 
No apostle had been over there yet. No one had been over to Spain yet. And, and notice what he wants from them. And he says, and to be helped on my journey there by you. He wants them to help him in this mission. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. Now, this aid that they needed was possibly due to a famine uh, that was in the, in the region in the late 40s, and it still had an effect on them, and also they're suffering from persecution. This church needed help, and at the same time, he needed to finish his work in the east of the empire, and that was to go to the Jerusalem, but then come back. He longed to see the church in Rome. He said, I had longed for many years to come to them. And we see this clearly in the actually beginning of Romans and flipping your Bible to Romans 1, 9 to 15. He actually talks about this longing for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And then he says, but I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented. And in this text we're studying today, he's describing why he's been prevented. He longs to come to them. When they would have read Romans, they would have read it all in one sitting. And they're probably wondering, well, why was he prevented? Well, now he's telling them in the end of this letter why he's been prevented to come to them. Now, why? Why does he want to go to them? Notice, look at the text. He says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Who's that? Those who he wants to go to. He says, I am under obligation. He must obey the command of the gospel. I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He longed to see them. He longed to build them up in their faith. I know one of the encouraging things for me, even though I've never been, is to see our work in India and hear the reports of all that God is doing there. It's amazing. And I know, I know many of us who have been there before, I haven't been there, but many members of Woodlawn who have been there before, they long to go back and see and be encouraged by their faith and to encourage their faith. And we can get a sense of what Paul's wanting here. Notice in verse 26, for Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. This is something they delighted in doing. They delighted to give. And notice the rest of this text. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, which he unfolded the argument for just now from the Old Testament, they ought also to be of service to them in their material blessings. This past week, I got to go to Oklahoma to a G3 expository preaching workshop, and we studied the book of 2 Corinthians. And I'm actually amazed that in this text, and I went and looked at the dates of the writings of these books, Romans was written in AD 57. 2 Corinthians, AD 56. And in 2 Corinthians, he's making an argument and saying, look, the Macedonians were so poor, but they gave out of their poverty in an abundance. And so he's playing for the churches of Acacia, which is the region of Corinth. He's urging them to give. He wants them to be like Christ, who, in the, quoting from 2 Corinthians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And we see in our text today 
That, that, that church listened to Paul's letter. They listened to that plea to give. The church in Corinth gave. They were pleased to give, just like the Macedonians, to, to serve this other church. And many of you also, in, in many ways, have given to the work of ministry to, to aid the churches in the seminary we serve in India, to aid churches around here, to, to go to Utah to support the churches there and to spread the name of Christ there. And that is what the church does. We support one another and he, he's called on them to do it and they do so. So now Paul is going on to verse 28 and he's gonna talk about his plans after his collection. Look at the text, verse 28. He says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. He's telling him his plans. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He's gonna be able to bless them just like he talked about he wanted to do in Romans chapter one. But then he makes this appeal. Look at verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers. Where have we seen this already? Romans 12. There's another appeal in, the, in Romans 16 we're gonna see. There's three appeals in this. And this appeal, it's, it's, it's an asking, but it's an, an not merely just an asking. It, it's, it's in an authoritative way. He's, he's pleading with them to obey the gospel. He says, look, I, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, see the authority of Christ, and, there, and to be motivated, how? By the love of the Spirit. That's the basis, the love of Christ. And how? By the love of the Spirit. To do what? Listen to what the text says. To strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. This idea of striving together, it's this idea of wrestling or fighting. It's where we get the word for agony in that, from that word. And he's saying, do this with me. Be in agony with me. Strive together with me in prayer. Notice he lays out his prayer request very clearly. Look at verse 31. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and then the other part of that and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In other words, that the act of worship of collecting what he's getting will be honorable to the Lord and would help them in their church. Why? Verse 32, he says, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We see clearly in this passage, once again, these, this language, even in the end here, this idea of acceptable service and deliverance and, and all these things point back to Paul's description of his ministry. Just like he described his ministry. He wants them to join him in this ministry and, and praying for the churches, to lifting them up and striving together to join them in this priestly service. We need to pray, and we pray every week for a local church, and we pray for a nation and the churches in those nations. We need to be in prayer as a church to pray that the gospel will go to all people. Paul recognized that God is sovereignly over his own affairs. He doesn't want to be hindered in coming to them. And that no matter what, that God was with him and would by his will bring them together and send him to Spain. And in closing to this benediction, he desires that the God of peace be with the church. God unites both Jew and Gentile. We see this clearly in this book. He brings us as being hostile enemies to being heirs of Christ when we trust in him by faith. So as we think of seeing Christ in this text, we see Christ in the good news. That is what drove Paul. What is the good news? The good news is this, that everything was perfect. God made a perfect world and we messed it up by our sin. 
Our sin has separated us from God. There's a deep chasm. We can never breach it. We can never get across it. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again from the grave. He was seen by so many eyewitnesses and they've passed down in his word to us today the gospel. We know the gospel. And if we trust in him by faith, which means to repent of our sins, to change our mind about our sin, and to turn toward Christ by faith, we will be saved. And that is the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. And this is the message that should be our ambition. It should be our joy to bring the peace of God to everyone. So how do we do that? We make disciples. That's what Paul would do. He would go to a place, lead people to Christ, make disciples, raise them up, and go to the next place. Are you making disciples? Now, if you're a parent, you are making disciples, like by default. They live in your home, and they're going to imitate what you do. Sometimes it's, it's sad when you see them imitate some things you do, right? You're like, oh man, I wish they wouldn't do that. <laughs> but they learned that from me. <laughs> right, we get that. But also, we imitate by how we sing, by how we pray, by how we read the word, by how we treat our spouses, by how we treat them, by how we treat our neighbor, We model for them what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. And this is a commission that's given to every Christian. No one's exempt. Jesus said in in Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Because that authority's been given, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them. So there's an aspect of instruction here. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, he gives a promise, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And Paul got that. He was persecuted, he went through so much in in, in making his ambition. Nothing would stop him from proclaiming the gospel around all the world. Are you making disciples today? And, and, And why do we do this? Because Christ, Woodlawn, look at me, Christ is worthy of our worship. And to spread the gospel is an act of worship. Are you worshiping Christ through sharing your faith? That's Paul's ambition. Is it your ambition? It's an act of worship for us to share our faith. Remember Romans 11, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Is that true of your life today? That you spread the gospel in that way? The Joshua Project has a statistic that 42.5% of people groups in the world are unreached, meaning, They have had few, if any, evangelical witness in the world. So this is around 7,402 people groups who have not heard and have not understood. I remember when we went to Washington, D.C. a couple summers ago, and we went to the Museum of the Bible, and they had this one room that has Bibles. And some of them are not Bibles. Some of them are just empty books. And the books are colored. They have different colors to designate different things about them. Some of the colors would represent they have a couple books of the Bible. Some of them represent, well, they have the whole New Testament. Some, the New Testament, and some parts of the Old Testament. But I remember being in that room, and all the ones that I believe were colored yellow means they had nothing. And can I tell you something? The majority of that room was covered in yellow. There are so many people who do not have the gospel. They do not have access to the gospel. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Who will go? Who will go? Who will bring the name of Christ around the world? Will we be like Isaiah when God said, who will go for me? And he says, here am I, send me. Will we have that 
availability? If you're a believer this morning and you know the gospel, let me ask you this. What ambition drives you? Is it for more stuff? Is it for a better position at your job? Is it for better notoriety? Is it just to look good to people? What drives you? What is your ambition? What gets you up in the morning? Let me plead with you to see that the most important thing is Christ. That he is worthy of our worship and how you work and how you labor and how you all fulfill your ministry. Are you fulfilling your ministry? Yesterday, um, when I was coming back from Oklahoma, I had, a, I had to get up at 4 a.m. and get on a flight out of Oklahoma. At six, I get 6.40. I get over to Phoenix. I don't know why they would send me that way, but I went to Phoenix, other side of the country, just so I can get back here. Well, I'm glad I did, because when I got on my plane from Phoenix to here, three-hour flight, very long flight, I sat next to a 14-year-old boy, and he was a very, you know, just outspoken kid. Like he just sits down. I sit down. Actually, I'm walking down the aisle and he goes, Hey, you should sit here. <laughs> or like he, he saw me eyeing it and he's like, yeah, go ahead and sit down. And like, I was like, Oh, okay. That's pretty bold of a kid. Well, I sit down next to him and we get talking a little bit and he's like, he's like, what do you do for a living? And I was like, I'm glad you asked. I said, I'm a pastor to students. And we had a really great conversation. And, uh, he starts telling me he does go to church. He's from Idaho. And um, so I began asking him questions because you never know if someone has a relationship with Christ. And, and so I asked him, I said, I said, um, you know, if you were to stand before God today and he were to ask you, why should I let you in my heaven? What would be your answer? I, just, I, I use that as a gauging question to try to get, catch his understanding. Well, he gives the gospel and I was like, oh, this is great. And then he says, and do good works. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. And so I'll walk him through the gospel. I take him right to Romans 3.10 and say, look, it says there's no one good. No, not one. There's none who are righteous. He says, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I said, I said, no, you're not. As a matter of fact, I know you're not because I know I'm not. <laughs> none of us are good. Apart from God, we're nothing. If, if, and I just said, look, if you compared yourself to God, God's perfect, right? He's like, yeah. I'm like, are you perfect? He said, no. I'm like, all right, you're bad. He's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> it was that simple and he got it. I was like, great. And we began walking through the gospel and we talked for an hour and a half. And I sat on my last plane studying for the sermon and just going over it. And I was like, I'm going to study on this plane for the sermon. But guess what? I got to live it out. I got to see here and make it my holy ambition to share the gospel with this kid. And he seemed to understand the gospel. He really got it. And it was really powerful. And then you know what he does? He turns to me. I, I tell him what the answer is, but then he goes, now what would you say to God if you were standing before him? And he would say, why would I shall let you in heaven? And I said, you know what? I'm glad you asked. And it was just tears just beginning to well up in my eyes. I said, because God's mercy. I didn't say because I did this or I did that. I said, because God's mercy. Because he died for me. He did it. He was righteous for me. I was able to reinforce all those truths that I told him about, it's not because of our works. And so I wanna encourage you, what is your ambition? How would you describe your work and your ministry? How would you describe your ambition? What drives you? And also think about this, where am I going? Are you like a disciple, obeying the great commission? Go and make disciples as you are going. Go and make disciples. Are you going? Are you when you're at the coffee shop? at the grocery store, at the gas pump, or at your job, are you 
driven by the gospel. I hope you are. There are times when even me as a pastor, sometimes I have tunnel vision about this next thing I need to do and I'll almost forget the lost on my left and right. But even through this text and even through some of these experiences, I got to share the gospel last week with somebody. The Lord is even working in me to be more ambitious and more eager to share my faith. Are you eager to share your faith? I hope you will be looking at how Paul is so eager and what that's rooted in. It's rooted in the gospel and what God has done for him. So Woodlawn, we must make it our holy ambition to take the gospel to all the nations for the sake of Christ's name. Maybe Christ is calling you to the, to the mission field, it's specifically as a missionary. Or maybe that burden is upon your heart and you aspire to do that and you're driven to do that. Maybe you've been wrestling over that. Well, I know we as a church would love to support you in that endeavor. Maybe you want to do better at your workplace. We would support you in that endeavor and equip you to do that. That's our job. That is my job is to equip you. That is Laramie's job to equip you. That's Lewis's job to equip you for the work of ministry. Help us to help you. Be humble and chase after God with all that you have. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time in your word. In this time of response and reflection, I pray that all of us as Christians would be committed, would be driven by holy ambition to proclaim the gospel, to take it where Christ has not been known, to where Christ has not been heard, We thank you that we've been able to even start a work in reaching the Dobie Muslims and seeing some of them come to faith in Christ. We thank you that even when we we go to heaven, that that nation, that ethnos, that people group will be with us singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power forever. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. And I pray that that would be the heart of every person in this room today to see you as worthy. Maybe today you're an unbeliever sitting in this room and you do not know the gospel and you came in here today and you've heard the gospel that Christ died on the cross for your sins and because you are a sinner and you're in need of saving that if you are not saved, you will bear for eternity the wrath of God against your sin. But Christ bore your sin on the tree. He bore your sin on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for your sin and that is offered to you. Will you accept it? Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart through the proclaimed word this morning. Would you respond rightly to the word? Would you trust Christ today? Trust that because he defeated death, and he defeated your sin, that your sin could be reckoned dead and you could be made alive in Christ today, I pray that you would trust him, that you would call upon him today and be saved. Maybe you're a believer today and in this room, you're struggling. You're torn by the, this inner turmoil, struggling with indwelling sin. Well, let me encourage you to surrender to Christ, to follow after him, to, to commit, recommit yourself again today and refocus yourself again today. Do it every day, wake up and say, God, this day is for you. Go to his word, go to your knees in prayer. Strive in prayer that God would work in your life. Because if you're distant from the word, you're not gonna know God's will for your life. So believer, if you feel torn and in turmoil and you're not solely focused on your ambition, dive into the word. See the glory of God in the scriptures. 
See, the story of scripture and what Christ has done is doing and one day will do. He's returning again. Are you ready? Life is short. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away like a mist. Are you wasting your life on worthless ambitions? Repent of that today. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Be honest with one another in your life groups tonight or with close friends in this church. I know if you were to turn someone to your right or to your left, they would be glad to pray with you, to encourage you. Pastor Lewis and I are going to be down front here. We'd be glad, we'd be glad to pray with you. If you're an unbeliever wanting to trust in Christ, if you're a believer this morning wanting encouragement, exhortation, admonishment, instruction, we want to give that to you. And maybe today you're a guest with us today and we're so glad you're with us. Maybe you've been a few times and you're thinking about membership. Well, this is a time where you could come forward and we'd be delighted to introduce you to the body and for the body to get to know you, the body of Christ here at Woodlawn. We would love to equip you and build you up in your faith. If that's something you desire to do today during this time of response, we'd be glad to receive you and pray with you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time and pray that we will be committed to having a holy ambition to take your name to all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.